18 to 24 year olds make up almost 10% of the American population, but in the 2018 midterm elections, they made up only 6% of voters. Our generation wants progressive change, but only we can make it happen. We are the future. We are the next generation of voters. I'm Aiden Cohn Murphy, and this is the Next Generation Politics Podcast. Hello, everyone. Happy Juneteenth, happy Pride Month, and welcome back to the Next Generation Politics Podcast. Today, we will be celebrating Pride Month and talking to Caleb King, or Alaskan boy on TikTok, about intersectionality within the LGBTQ community. But first, we'll cover two huge Supreme Court decisions that have come down in the past few days that have made huge strides for civil rights. And then we'll wrap up with our How Can You Get Involved segment. I also want to shout out Daniel Wilk and Audrey Taylor, our research and writing heads. This was their first episode doing most of the research and writing, and they did an amazing job. So let's get into it. The first Supreme Court ruling came on Monday, and up until Monday's decision, more than half of the states could legally fire workers for being openly gay or part of the LGBTQ community. And of course, a large majority of Americans oppose employment discrimination based on sexual orientation. But the Supreme Court decision extended workplace, workplace protections to millions of Americans across the nation. So here's a little bit of background on it. The case was, as I mentioned, about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination based on, quote, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So the question of the case was, was whether sexual orientation and gender identity, like being trans, fit within sex in the, um, in the statute. The decision was made 6-3 with Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch penning the majority opinion, joined by Justice Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Gorsuch wrote that, quote, an employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions that would not have been questioned in members of a different sex. So basically what he's saying is that gender identity and, and sexual orientation is inherently tied into sex or gender. Um, because, like, imagine that there's a business that has two employees, and there's one male employee and there's one female employee, and both of the employees are dating a man, but the business owner decides to fire the man because he's dating a man. The employee is not solely being fired because they're dating a man. They're being, they're being fired because they're a man dating a man. So therefore, gender is inherently tied into sexuality in the workplace. Um, so that's the basic news from, from the, the Civil Rights Act decision, and that's a, a huge step forward in LGBTQ rights, and it's um, another step forward into full legal equality for LGBTQ individuals. Okay, so the other big Supreme Court decision from the week came on Thursday morning when the Supreme Court blocked the Trump administration's plan to end DACA. So here's some background. DACA is an Obama-era program known as the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which has shielded almost a million immigrant children from deportation. Many of these children have lived in America for almost their entire lives, yet they have little to no path to citizenship. DACA provides employment, access to education, and incredible opportunities for those who qualify. And because Trump is the wrecker of all joy in September of 2017, his administration announced their plan to end DACA. So this immediately raised questions about how that would impact current DACA recipients. So immediately, several lawsuits were, were filed, um, and in June of 2019, the Supreme Court granted a review of the case and set a decision for June of 2020. 
So here we are in June of 2020, and the Supreme Court has blocked the Trump administration from ending DACA with a 5-4 decision, with a majority opinion written by John Roberts, who's joined by Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Alana Kagan. The ruling stressed there was no adequate legal justification provided that would warrant ending the program. So there's some pretty huge impacts here. First one is just um, within the court, this decision solidifies Roberts' position as the center of the court, as the swing vote um, that I, he's kind of taking the mantle of Anthony Kennedy, who retired and was replaced by Brett Kavanaugh. Um, but not much of a surprise there. He's kind of always been the more moderate justice. Um, but a, a larger ramification the, the, is that DACA recipients can continue to live, work, and study in the U.S. without fear of, de of deportation, again, for now. So, of course, um, it does not guarantee permanent safety. Trump, to no surprise, had a very strong reaction to this. Um, and to quote my, my research and writing, Ken Audrey, I'm including this because I actually laughed out loud and also stared at my phone for like five minutes in frustration and disbelief when I saw these tweets. First one, I'm, I'm, I'm going to read them in a quiet and scared voice because it's what they sound like. Do you get the impression that the Supreme Court doesn't like me? To quote Audrey, it literally sounds like something her friend would say about her math teacher would say about her math teacher after not studying for a test and receiving a bad grade on it. The other quote was, quote, these horrible and politically charged decisions coming out of the Supreme Court are shotgun blasts into the faces of people that are that are proud to call themselves Republicans or conservatives. We need more justices or we will lose our Second Amendment and everything else. Vote Trump 2020. So to be clear, Trump is renouncing politically charged Supreme Court decisions and ending the message with vote Trump 2020 with a political message. So um, as usual, Trump is not is not really staying on one message, so no surprises there. And I know that in this, in this week, in this month, in this year, in this time overall, it is hard to find good news, um, but this ruling gives me hope and reminds me, and will hopefully remind all of us, that change comes and progress is made slowly, but progress is still being made. So that makes me happy. Without further ado, here's my discussion about intersectionality and pride with Caleb King or at Alaskan Boy on TikTok. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Caleb King. How are you? How are you doing today, Caleb? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm a little bit tired, but I think that's I think everyone's tired all the time right now. So I I'm, I'm, don't feel special. Mm -hmm. um, so before we start, do you want to tell us a little bit? Tell us tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so hey, my name's Caleb King. I'm Sitback, Alaska native. From My family's from Old Harbor, um, Slidovia Village Tribe. I just graduated with my degree in neuroscience from Indiana University, and I'm 21, and I'll be moving to D.C. coming July to do consulting in the government and public services sector. So I'm not sure what that'll look like yet, but probably Health and Human Services, CDC, National Institutes mm -hmm. of Health, stuff like that. That's amazing. Um, when did you get involved in politics or just social justice? Well, I've, I've always been aware of what's going on politically. I haven't always been so vocal about it, but being indigenous, being gay, it's like not an option because growing up, you just see headlines of things that affect your life. Like, oh, now you're allowed to get married. Um, now you see another tribe losing land rights. Now you see another uh, headline of cardiovascular risk increasing among, among indigenous people. Now you're seeing AIDS epidemic uh, increase again. So it never felt political to me. It always felt like, these are things that are affecting my life. And then as I got older, I realized that 
almost everyone has something that is directly affected in their life by politics. So it's more, mm -hmm. I feel I need to be involved for the sake of equity, because yeah. I think if people are dying and it's preventable, then someone should be saying something. Exactly. And I think that's often what bothers me about like conservatives or just people who say things like, oh, let's keep politics off TikTok or like you can still mm -hmm. be friends with someone if they have different political beliefs than you. Because I think that like for, for a lot of people, politics is just like something that you can follow and you're like you, you root for one team and you vote for one for like one team um, when like I, I think it's, it's easy to say that when your rights aren't just like tied into politics. Um, so about pride and intersectionality. So first, earlier this week, the Supreme Court decided that Article 7 of the Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So they decided that the term sex encompasses sexuality and gender identity, meaning that, um, I, I mean, before this, in a third of states, um, sorry, more than half of states, you can be legally fired for being openly gay or part of the LGBTQ community. And so this ruling um, finally bans that. What's your reaction? I'm excited. I, I try to not be pessimistic. I think it's incredibly exciting and amazing breakthrough. First of all, it's not legislation, though, which is important to recognize. It's not legislation. Mm -hmm. It's a Supreme Court decision. There's still legislation that needs to be passed to mm -hmm. make this a law, make it law. Mm -hmm. It makes me um, also sad that people, that this is 2020 and this is just now happening. It's 2020. This is just now happening where LGBTQ plus people are feeling more safe to go to a job and not get fired. And there's still three people on the Supreme Court who did not agree with that decision, who didn't think that that was allowed. So I find it incredibly exciting. And I put all of my excitement in the activists that brought this around. I don't applaud the Supreme Court or government for doing this because it's something they should have done a long time ago. Mm -hmm. so, so this is, I mean, I think this is a less like technical question. So unfortunately, many people don't understand the impact of intersectional pride um, and, so, and why it's so important to the movement. So how would you explain the importance of intersectionality to someone who doesn't really understand it? I think what's so important is we get stuck in a bubble often. I think let's take LGBTQ+, just being LGBTQ+, for an example. When, we're, when we say LGBTQ+, most people think of white gays. That is the first mm -hmm. thing that comes to mind. There are black people in the LGBT community, Muslim people, uh, indigenous people. There's uh, people with disabilities, people with um, different uh, neuroanatomical setups and uh, different mental diseases that they're facing, people with different socioeconomic status. And if we're not fighting for the rights <clears throat> that they find impactful to their communities, just as hard as we're fighting for the LGBTQ plus diaspora and umbrella, um, just as a singular identity, then we're not being intersectional. We have to take into account not only what the main identity uh, is of LGBTQ plus people, but what the experiences are of different individuals in different communities that just so happen to overlap with the LGBTQ plus community. I think mm -hmm. forgetting that we are intersectional people, we all have different identities, is a disservice to who we are as people. You know, you can't boil down, I'm not just gay. I'm, like, I'm indigenous, I'm a scientist. I'm first generation college student. There's a lot of different things that we all bring to the table and to neglect all of those things we're bringing to the table is a disservice to the individual and the community. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I remember um, I, I go to a pretty liberal school in DC and we had like a pride assembly and we had someone um, like a speaker come talk about um, like intersectionality in pride. And so he was talking about being gay um, and being a black man and how like that's impacted him and 
for some reason there was like there was a not a controversy but like I heard some people talking about how like they wish that he hadn't like it hadn't like pride didn't have to be about race and it could just be about being gay and I remember like hearing that and saying like he was talking a little bit about intersectionality but like more than that he was just a black person and like to me that kind of sounded like the only acceptable pride to like to some people and especially like white white gay people the only acceptable pride is from white people and that was that could that just kind of um was disturbing and it kind of like just i mean I, I understood how intersectionality was important before but that was like oh wow we like we have a, we have a lot of steps to go especially for a community that like that we claim to be so liberal and opening and open yeah and all the time people want to say want to just celebrate they want to just celebrate and forget all of the other issues that other people in the lgbtq plus community are facing Trans people do not have the same equality that gay people do. Just even if we are taking race out of it, I think gay people in general want to experience pride without focusing on the issues that we have left to solve. And taking race out of it is pretty hefty coming from people who got their rights from black trans women and trans women of color. I mean, they have always and consistently, and I think it's because they're already, society already looks at trans people a certain way and on, and even after dealing with that different way they're looked at, they still are loud and vocal and try to make change and push forward most aggressively our rights. And those are usually trans women of color. That's just historically, I mean, not, not just Marsha P. Johnson. Historically, it's mm-hmm. been trans women of color who fought hardest. So, you know, when people say they don't want to bring race into something, that means that they don't want to acknowledge what issues other people are facing that are in their community. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Um what do you think is the biggest challenge in achieving intersectionality and inclusion within the LGBTQ community? Or what do you think that, like, what do you think that we, well, what do you think that the community can actively do to try to promote inclusion? I think what needs to happen is we need non-white leaders and we need non-gay leaders. We need people from the most marginalized communities to be the ones who are leading our pride, the ones who are planning our prides the ones who are planning our marches and our initiatives. And I think when we amplify and centralize the voices of people who are experiencing the most violence, the most murder, the most attacks in our community, when we're centering them and showing that we think that they're important, that their voices are important to us, that gives power behind their voice. And I think that amplifies it to where other people will find it equally as important. But until we do so, until we embrace people who everyone is saying is radical, everyone is saying is too loud or everyone is saying is shaking the boat then then the boat won't shake because they're the shakers they're the shakers and the movers and the ones who are willing to ruffle feathers to make a difference so i to me the the most prudent change that needs to happen is the biggest voices leading lgbtq plus movements need to be trans women of color uh, and two-spirit indigenous people mm-hmm. absolutely i mean it's it's so disturbing or just just sad to see like within the white gay community or just within within the lgbtq community at large like there there's been so much to get like to get the baseline for gay rights and, and it makes me sad it makes me sad to see like white gay men just say like oh like the it, homophobia i think to a lot of people homophobia is the only issue facing the lgbtq community but as you said i think that just comes from a severe lack of like just recognizing intersectionality because like 
if homo if you're a member of the LGBTQ LGBTQ community and you're and homophobia is the only like is the only type of hatred that you're worried about experiencing, that probably means that you're a white Christian cis gay man, gay man. Mm-hmm. and so it just it disturbs me to see like a community that we, we pride ourselves we pride ourselves on um on being like opening and being like we've overcome so much to get where we are today not do the same when um when it's not white gay men doing the talking yeah or even masculine men that don't believe homophobia exists because they are just so they present as quote unquote a normal masculine man and let's say maybe some of these trump supporting white masculine gays they're like what why are people still yelling we have equality we have pride we have gay marriage did you know you yeah. could be fired until last week? Like, did you, like, do you even, it's insane to me. Yeah, it is bizarre <laughs> in a, in a terrible, in a terrible way. And the amount of Trump supporting gays at Indiana University was insane. It was insanity. I, I mean, I, I remember, like, <laughs> I I've talked to, I've talked to some, um, some gay people who support Trump, and I'm like, he doesn't like us. Like he he said up until 2016 yeah. that he was going to support that he was going to put Supreme Court justices to overturn gay marriage, and that's still something that's totally possible. And like he's 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 not supporting the Equality Act, which is like mm-hmm. the bare minimum. Bare minimum. <laughs> and like he can't even do the bare minimum. Like it's not, and it's all about. No. He preaches like religious, and and this is something that, that people ask questions about too, but he preaches like religious like freedom. And I don't, I genuinely don't get how conservatives say that, like, that religious freedom is the freedom to restrict other people's rights. Like, I don't understand why they think that, like, (laughs) why it's their, because no one's, no one's trying to legislate Christianity. And if someone did, they would be like, no, it's our right. But you're trying to legislate, like, homosexuality, just being gay. And that's just insane to me. I don't know, I don't know how they got into their minds that, like, that they're the ones who should get to discriminate against other groups because of who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they love the founding fathers until the founding fathers said separation of church and state. Then all of a sudden, it's then all of a sudden we're a Christian nation. It's like you refer to these slave owners as everything else for everything else. Can you refer to them at least for that, too? Can you just include it? Exactly. It is. It's truly bizarre. And I will I'll never understand because like if you want to like I'm Jewish, if you want to talk to like a Trump supporter about about instituting Jewish values in the country, then they're like, no, it's separation of church and state. And then when you're like, oh, then let's not do Christian values, they're like, no, Christian values should be the guiding principles. And it's like, I understand every religion, like, I mean, one of the points of being part of a religion is thinking that your religion is correct. But I think Christians are often unique in thinking that their religion is correct and everyone else should have to abide by their standards, but they shouldn't even have to think about other people's standards. And that's just so disturbing. Mm-hmm. It is very disturbing. Um, yeah, and that's, that's what I think about whenever I see, a, I see it on Twitter, gays for Trump. I'm like, really? And also, like, it's not even... I, I see, like... I quickly became he, homophobic. I quickly exactly, became homophobic. Exactly. <laughs> um, I even understand, like, not understand... But I know that some like some white gays don't support trans people, which is terrible. But even from the angle of just like just being gay, solely being gay, Mike Pence supports conversion therapy. Like, mm-hmm. how can you how can you like how can you support a man who's running me? Literally supports you going to like a a camp to 
change your sexuality. I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. <sighs> mm-hmm. That's why I want to It's guilty by association. Yeah. It's guilty by association. And the thing is, it's not even like a passive association. Like, Trump, Trump looked at Pence, looked at his past, and was like, mm-hmm. yes, this is the man who I want. Um, it, is, it is shocking to me. Um, how has being a political presence on TikTok affected you? How is that? Has it changed? Have you decided to like watch what you say more, or has it empowered you to like be more open? It's impacted me in a really a lot of ways, actually. I think the first is I do have to watch what I say a lot more. I have young viewers, you know, such as yourself. You're not really young, but I mean, you are five years younger than me, and. I realize that I, I'm not trying to sound like big ego, but I can weaponize them on accident. If I'm frustrated with someone and I express those frustrations, there are now however many people who see that video who are going to just do that. They're just going to also be angry out of context and go be angry at that person. So I've had to be careful about if I quote unquote put someone on blast or quote expose someone for racist, homophobic ideologies Um, or even just in general, I also have to be a little more careful about what I say in general because I feel like people look to me now as someone that they can rely on for solid information. And I think I've given this (laughs) persona to people that I'm a very calm, rational, level-headed person, which isn't always true. I'm just another human who gets pissed Mm -hmm. off sometimes, who gets frustrated with our current environment, um, so it's, it feels more like a job now than it did in the beginning, but I do really enjoy it. I feel I've get 50, 60 DMs a day of people saying they feel empowered. People are saying that they're learning something, which is so important mm-hmm. to me. People feel heard, which is really important to me. And it's so exciting to if I, what I want to be to people is the, the gay person that's older than me that I wish I had when I was younger. Mm-hmm the person who is happy with their identity, the person who isn't afraid to speak against intolerance. And it seems like some people see me as that, which is very fulfilling to me, makes me very happy. Of course, I wish I could just have fun on TikTok. Like if I had my preference, I would just make jokes. It'd be really silly. I'd do jokes. It'd be like being TikTok, funny shit. But that's, it's just not, not possible all the time when you know we're in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement, when there's gay rights being violated when there's a humanitarian crisis in Yemen right now. I mean, there's just too much going on to waste a platform on laughing all mm-hmm. the time, at least. Sometimes a laugh is good. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I totally agree on that. Um, what, so what do you think LGBTQ influ- influencers, like such as yourself, um, what do you think that you guys can do to spread and maintain intersectionality among your audiences? Because I think that you've done an amazing job, um, amazing job with it like the remember of all the reminder of all the different identities but what do you think that like other creators um can do to make sure that they're promoting those values i mean i don't think other lgbtq plus creators are doing anything really i mean there's not many especially white other white lgbt creators on tiktok they do nothing they don't talk about social issues they don't talk about lgbt issues they're not talking about black lives matter movement they're silent they are 100% silent. All of these white gays on TikTok say nothing. They post their thirst traps. They talk about being single. They do their POVs. 
They're doing all these things that are zero value add to society when they are a marginalized group and there are people within their community that are getting murdered and killed for their identities. And I cannot tell you how disappointed I am in those people of the LGBTQ plus community who stay silent when they should be speaking. So the first thing they can do is open their mouths. The first thing they can do is speak about anything they care about, anything that might affect the young members they're watching that are watching them. Um, I How I try to do intersectionality is I try to, you know, I talk about black issues a lot. I'm white. Well, I'm Alaska native, but I present as white. Anyone who doesn't know me will look at my page and say, oh, that's a white kid. Mm-hmm. I try to not insert my own thoughts into those into those conversations. I try to really engage with literature that exists, engage with other black, with black creators that are speaking very vocally on these issues and try to inform and summarize what I'm hearing from them. Um, I try to not put my own spin on things because I think that that, I don't want to speak for the black community. I just try to speak on what I agree with and as an ally, what I think other people should do as well. And I think that's what the most important thing is of intersectionality is to not be scared to speak on something, just to inform yourself. And so like you fuck up. So what? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to what's going to happen? The worst thing is worse is someone's going to say, hey, that doesn't actually represent our community. And then you apologize. The I think it's much worse to be silent and to make people defend their entire humanity and existence by themselves than to say something and potentially say it wrong and just have to do a, a quick fix. Mm-hmm. What frustrates me is I've seen like, I've seen comments on like like white white when white people are talking about um, intersectionality and race, I've seen comments like accusing them of like fetishizing black issues or like trying to use them as an opportunity, mm-hmm. and that like, and they're they're almost always from from white people, and it always kind of like mm-hmm. of course that stuff does exist, but it's so disturbing because it feels like, like if you're trying to promote, if you're trying to lift up. Um, like black creators or you're trying to to make sure that black issues get into the spotlight and someone's accusing you of promoting it like the the other option w- would be not promoting it and like fewer people find out about it and that that that's always like kind of disturbed me that people like yeah have you had any Yeah, I get that like a that? lot. Yeah, it's always white people, they're always conservatives, they're always like, "Oh, he's simping for the black community." And you know what? It's fine. It's never affected me. It's like, whatever. I mean, there's people that are dying, dude. There's really more important shit to worry about than whether or not you think I actually care about these issues. What matters to me is if one person hears it and they feel impacted to make a change or do something. That's what matters most. And it also matters a lot to me that my young black followers know that I'm there for them. Like, I have your back. I have your back. And if you need something, I'm here to amplify your voice. And I'm here to this platform is here for you to be heard, hopefully, if you need to be heard. So it, it doesn't matter. I mean, 99% of the critiques I get are absolutely stupid and worthless, and they don't hurt my feelings because they're dumb. It's like, well, you obviously just don't know me, so, it, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay, I have some, some listener-submitted questions. Okay, um, let's go. Yes. Okay, ha- this, is, this is a very broad question to start on. How do you deal, or how, does, how should one deal with internalized homophobia? I know, it's Ooh. very broad. Uh, <laughs> if you find out, baby, let me know. Um, I, uh, you know one thing that's really helped me with, with getting through internalized homophobia is making more gay friends, and specifically making more femme gay friends. I think there's a negative stigma against feminine gay community members against trans well there is definitely a stigma against trans community members but making 
a, an effort to connect with those people. Because I think we, part of our internal homophobia is not becoming friends with people who are feminine and gay because they're more outwardly gay. It makes us more outwardly gay. Asking yourself, why am I not friends with more feminine gay men? Why do I feel weird when I see a guy in a crop top? Just challenging those things inside of your head and instead of just accepting them as truth, asking yourself, why is this a truth in my head? What can I do to push back against it? And I think the biggest answer is just time. It's just time. Because the longer you're gay, the longer you're out, the more people you're seeing in the community, the more accepted you feel, the more connections you have to lean on. And it's not like an overnight thing. I mean, this is years. This is, I'm 21, I still have internalized homophobia. I came out three years ago. Mm -hmm. I've known I was gay for probably seven years now, maybe longer. Well, I mean, I've known I was gay forever, but I've been like, well, I'm gonna marry a man for like seven years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think time Um, and intentional friendship Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, how do you respond to um, to like it's it's often white gay men who who think that not dating like a person of a different race is a is a preference. Yeah. So there's a neuro there's neuroscience behind this. The neuroscience says scientists say findings find <laughs> that preference is not something you're born with. It's something that is influenced by the media you consume, by the friends you have around you, by the community you grew up in, and it's also reversible. It's easy to reverse preference by just changing the people around you. If you say that you have a preference for non-black people, you don't, you don't prefer to date black people, that's called racism. That's not called a preference. Mm-hmm. If you say you don't prefer Asian men, you're racist against Asian men. It's not a preference. There's no question. It's, it's not a question. The, the question is, are you willing to engage with the fact that you're putting someone's skin color over their entire personality? Everything about them. Their, their, their interests, their passions, their family the love that they potentially could have for you, you're putting all of that as less important than their skin color and the, the bone structure of their face potentially, which is mm-hmm. idiotic. It's idiotic. Um, and I would tell them they're racist. That's what I would say. How, do, how should one deal with homophobic, homophobic parents, especially if, if one is LGBTQIA+. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I waited till I moved out and I cut their asses off. <laughs> That's it. And There's do you no regret room. that, or is it um, No, is not it at all. Mm-hmm. I have no regrets on that. Um, I think if someone denies your identity, then they don't have a place in your life. I think we put too much stake on keeping people who are hurtful in your family around, which I don't believe in. I don't subscribe to the notion that because they're family, they deserve to be in your life. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay, last question. Um, how has being um, Native Alaskan, how has that affected your gay identity or your identity writ large? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, my native community is my tribe, my family, other indigenous people that I've met. No one's ever been. No one's ever brought me being LGBT into it. I feel like. When I'm in native spaces, I'm native. I'm not gay. I mean, I am gay, but that is just so, whatever that it's not even relevant to the conversation. It's not relevant to, the community I'm in because there's not really a stigma around it. Um, so that hasn't really, I've at least felt no negative impacts from it. Um, and you know, when I walk throughout the world, being indigenous only affects my worldview of information that I see. You know, I don't experience racism. No one, 
No one treats me as if I'm not a white male. And if I need to, I can be more masculine if I feel unsafe as a, as a protective measure. Um, which is sad to say that that happens, but it does. So I wouldn't say that me being indigenous affects how other people perceive me. It just affects how I digest information, how I digest news, how I think intersectionally about the world, what friendships I'm making and what people I connect with, who my mentors are. So I think it's more implicitly affected my direction and path in life. You know, that's why I want to go into medicine. Mm -hmm. That's why I am interested in politics a lot more. Um, but it's not really something that's people don't see it. So it doesn't, you know, okay. Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much to Caleb King for taking the time to talk with me today. Intersectionality is such an important thing that I think members of the white LGBTQ community often fail to recognize. Before I leave you, I want to talk about how you can get involved and how you can make change. So all of these links are attached in the description. And before I should start, I say all of these resources are found by my other research and writing head, Daniel Wilk. So thank you, Daniel. First one you can follow on Instagram. Here's some, um, some ways that you can educate yourself on intersectionality and pride. So first, follow at Kimberly Crenshaw on Instagram. She is the person who coined the term intersectionality, and she hosts the Intersectionality Matters podcast. She's also a legal professor at the schools of Columbia and UCLA. Next, Changing Woman, with an X instead of the A in woman, on Instagram. They are a collect collect uh, collective of women and non-binary femmes of color who elevate the creative work of women of color who have had their, whose work has historically been ignored. Next, here's some articles that you can read to educate yourself. First, When Kids Are Straight Until Proven Otherwise, which is from The Atlantic, which insightfully explores queer childhood. Next, Why Mothering as a Queer Black Woman is Inherently Political, from The Washington Post. This discusses how, for many, promoting inclusion is a means of survival. If you're looking for organizations to support, we'd recommend, first one, For the Girls. They assist trans people to pay rent and help out with, their, with affording their gender affirmation surgeries. Next, The Trevor Project. They are a suicide hotline for queer youth who have faced an incredibly high suicide rate in the past few years. If you're unable to donate, that's not a problem. There are some other actions that you can take in your everyday life to promote inclusion. First, remember that queerness, or any other identity, does not take away your ability to be prejudiced towards another group. Everybody's liberation is bound together, so we must always stand together as minorities. Next, if you're going to lead a discussion or movement or do anything activism-y, it is critical to amplify voices from people of all different backgrounds. An example is that the pride movement must not focus solely on white gay men. Next, this, this is obvious, but be nice to people and work against internalized prejudices that you may hold. Next, diversify your feeds with people from queer, black, and indigenous backgrounds. Don't be one of those people who say annoying things like, why are there so many crazy gender labels right now? Labels create a sense of community for queer people, and the pursuit of happiness is a deeply personal act for us and for everyone. So those are some actions that you can take to, um, to promote inclusion. Um, thank you so much to Daniel for finding those. And again, everything's in the description. And if you're on Spotify, go to YouTube, and that's also in our description. One more thing about intersectionality. So as you guys know, I'm gay and Jewish. And I made a, actually, I made a TikTok about this specifically, but I'm still going to talk about it. Um, I think that often what, what we as humans fail to recognize um, in like now these days is that being a member, as Daniel touched on this, being a member of minority group does not make you exempt from having privilege. I don't have privilege in my religion, nor do I have privilege in my sexuality, but that doesn't mean I still can't experience white privilege or male privilege. And I think that's something we need to recognize, is that, that, like, 
we all have, I mean, there's some people who don't, but we all, we all kind of have privilege in our own way. And it, we need to remember that just because just we're part of this one group that's been historically oppressed doesn't mean that we, uh, like a different part of our identity, can also be um, the oppressor. And I think that intersectionality is about, is about recognizing the different parts of your identity, and I think that that's also important, is to recognize them each separately in addition to how that connects you as, as one human being, but also each part separately think about how the privilege or lack thereof that you experience based on that identifier. Finally, before we go, let's talk a little bit about Juneteenth, which is today. Juneteenth comes at a very topical time this year. If you don't know, or if you didn't listen to the podcast from a couple weeks ago, Juneteenth marks the day that slavery was fully abolished in America. It marks the day that slaves, sorry, that enslaved persons in Texas heard about the Emancipation Proclamation fully ending slavery in America, except for prison labor, but that's another issue for a different time. Um, so it is now celebrated annually on the 19th of June throughout the United States with varying official recognition. But on Wednesday, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York um, signed, an signed an executive order making Juneteenth a holiday for all state employees. Juneteenth is incredibly important now because it stands as a stark reminder of the work that we still need to achieve and that we haven't achieved over the past 200 years. Thank you again for watching or listening to the Next Generation Politics Podcast. Thank you to Caleb King, Alaskan boy on TikTok, for coming on the podcast. Big shout out to my producer, Ariel Cohn, my director, Sydney Gift, my PA, Caleb Murphy, who's holding that up right now because the screen fell down. And to my new research and writing heads, Audrey Taylor and Daniel Wilk, for all the help with writing the episode. Um, thank you again also to our other division heads who, are your, who you're going to get to meet over the next few weeks. We are 137 days into election day. I'm Aine Cohn Murphy, and this was the Next Generation Politics Podcast.